welcome to the Foundations of Occupational Science course podcast. I really hope that you enjoy being able to listen to this course content on the go while you're engaging in other occupations even. Thank you so much. Hello everyone, welcome to the core content lecture for the first module that we have here on the Member Vault platform. I'm so excited to share with you insight to the value that occupational science literacy can offer to US-based OTPs. I will qualify that many of these are expressed really from my own perspective. And I know that so far we've actually been able to recruit quite a few people who do have robust backgrounds in occupational science. So I'm interested to see from their perspective what benefits occupational science literacy has added to their life as an occupational being, as OT clinician, particularly if they're practicing in the United States. But I wanted to share with you some of the benefits that I've been able to come across so far to hopefully inspire you to be invested, to keep going on this journey, and to see what occupational science literacy has to offer you and your clients and your community, maybe even your family and your immediate life will benefit from getting more orientation to this distinct school of thought. I wanted to start really with a discussion on some of the benefits that I've been able to identify on the individual level, just really in my own experience. So as a clinician, I've really found that getting more literacy in occupational science has helped me address many of my own internalized oppression in relation to internalized sexism. Sexism is one of the major ways that I've personally experienced a systemic oppression as a white woman in the United States. Internalized oppression really started as a concept explored within social justice studies in relation to many of the persistent harmful ways that folks that are experiencing systemic marginalization, particularly around systemic racism, have over time intergenerationally begun to internalize messages from that system and can be an active agent in maintaining those systems of oppression even when nobody's around to enforce them at all. Whenever I read about this concept and reflect on my own experiences of sexism and internalized sexism, it really strikes me as a meaningful concept to explore in relation to occupational therapy's history and practice and the systemic dismission, the difficulty establishing autonomy within the occupational therapy field, the extent that occupational therapy has traditionally been associated with women's work or work around mental health, emotions, creativity, and handiwork. It's part of our society's systemic sexism that we undervalue those contributions to society or have a sense that work shouldn't be compensated, studied, or seen as valid and scientific. And I know that I've at times repressed my own feminine expressions in these particularly patriarchal health systems and educational systems that I've worked in. And occupational science has been a much more empowering context to reflect on the value that some of this feminized labor has offered and to think about how I can relate to occupational science and empower empower other women that are involved in occupational therapy to have a lens and a framework where we can support each other and not suppress the potential of our field or keep us in a more disempowered place in the context of our shared history as occupational therapy practitioners. And I also want to acknowledge that in this discussion that we're really just getting started in working through and acknowledging the systemic racism that has been endemic to occupational therapy since its founding and looking at how we can continue to benefit with getting increased clarity and rebalancing within occupational therapy. And part of that will be learning about our own internalized as clinicians that have developed in the field and how we can use insight to that practice to create smoother, smoother experiences for those that are entering the profession of occupational therapy for more marginalized status. And if you're like me, if you are another Caucasian woman, sometimes getting to know internalized sexism and oppression from that view can be a great lens of compassion to other identities in the work that we can do to create more empowered presence for a wider diversity of occupational therapy practitioners. So for me, this is a huge benefit to occupational science literacy. The other ones that I want to bring up include increased clarity about my professional identity and enhanced autonomy on the teams and the traditional settings that I've been working in. Because I know what occupational science terminology to use, what the constructs are that I'm looking for in terms of the outcome-based interventions I'm developing, 
and I know what policy guidelines, what literature, and what frameworks to appeal to on my teams in somewhat of a non-confrontational way, I'm able to assert my distinct value and autonomy on the team with increased personal clarity and confidence. That's something that I really wish for everyone to get the opportunity to development, perhaps with the support of occupational science. I've also noticed that I have reduce burnout. I see so much more potential in the offering that occupational therapy has to offer in the future, and I have a lot more fun at work. (laughs) My interventions are constantly changed up in response to the needs of my clients. I don't feel bored, and I feel empowered to be more creative at work, and I feel more in position to advocate for my value on the team. And personally, just as an occupational being myself, I feel like I have improved my own life, my own occupational balance, my own sense of well-being in the context that I work in through increased awareness. And I feel like I have increased my connection to my community and have more optimistic outlets to think about what is possible in the future rather than fixating on what feels like endless barriers and defeat. I now have some threads that I can pull on with some optimism and looking for positive examples on how we can respond to challenges that feel too big to take on. I also have increased precision in the language that I use, both in my personal life and in my clinical documentation that really articulate the value of what I have to offer. Really, you can't confuse my notes very easily with physical therapy. (laughs) And I feel like I've increased sort of the evidence base of the documentation that I use and how I communicate my prof- about the profession. I think I sound more confident when I'm explaining what occupational therapy does and how we have a distinct role in history. It really is occupational science literacy that has given me this clarity, and so I really hope it's something you get to experience as well. In terms of my clients, I think that they're receiving more holistic client-centered services from me. They really get a customized evaluation process. Their goals are much more meaningful to them. Their therapy sessions, I think, are a lot more fun. They're not as rote and standardized, and they get to explore who they are as an occupational being. We talk about their occupational history, their identity, the challenges that they're currently facing. They really feel listened to, and I think that they feel empowered to come up with joint goals, and really at no matter what scale we're intervening on, there's ways to adapt the OTPF process to working with nonverbal clients to working with severe strokes, clients that are largely having mental health rather than physical health challenges. So I really think that just about every one of my clients, whether it's in acute care, post-acute care, or pediatric practice, has felt more listened to and more empowered and having more fun in our therapy sessions. I think that in that regard, there's reduced redundancy and service delivery. They don't feel like they're just getting the same service over and over again. And they're having connection to meaningful, fun, and genuine community resources. Because I've adopted more of a perspective on how the trajectory of development can be over the life of an occupational being, and not just the current context that they're in, say it's acute care, I'm thinking about how we optimize for their occupational well-being across context and what sort of supports they need in the community to sustain and experiencing long-term access and equity. So I'm connecting my clients to a lot more community-based services that fulfill and satisfy their needs outside of our immediate session. And I think that they get a sense of validation of their humanity as an occupational being, that they feel recognized to reduce that stigma and the dehumanization that often comes with our traditional biomedical environments and our traditional educational environments. And the services that I offer There's more of a meaningful adaptation to their customized personal context rather than forcing them more into a normative statistical distribution or a standardized format with advice that may or may not fit them or not. We take the time to think and consider how we can adapt the information to work for them in their own personal life and context. So now I wanted to focus a little bit on some of the benefits that can be experienced from occupational science literacy at the micro level. So this is usually taking into account more of the organizational level that you work in, so your immediate practice setting environment, or in the personal life context, your immediate family and the community that you exist in. So that small scale organizations like churches, your work setting, your family life, 
it is broadening the circle beyond you immediately, but not quite at that state, local, community level. And this is a framework that is now operationalized actively within the practice framework of looking things at the scale from the individual, micro, meso, and macro level to look at different scales to intervene on or different modes of analysis for taking into account different problems. This is something that's developed as an outgrowth from the social sciences and is one of the benefits that occupational science, I believe, contributed to offering the development of occupational therapy practice, but also just the integration of that social science into our study process in occupational science is a really meaningful lens to look at when developing research and to figure out interventions that can be meaningful in context. So at the micro level, I've personally experienced more occupational balance in my home and community context in that I've been able to recognize when I'm not being as present at home within my family system. And I've also considered my family members, my partner, even my pets to a certain extent as occupational beings that need, that can benefit from me adapting to the supports they need in their own system. So as you get to know your own friends, your family, your community members as occupational beings, you can get more creative insight and in how to bring balance into your community relationships and to think creatively about problem solving when tensions come up and when the environment maybe isn't designed to support everyone. I feel that I'm more keen to address access barriers that are outside of formal practice. So the lens of occupational science, where it allows us to work as a basic science with more typically developing or gen ed populations, we can have our eye out for how, say, the grocery store maybe has access barriers that could be responded to, or how maybe a Zoom meeting for your local quilting guild could be made more accessible. Because it's not necessarily formal therapy, you have the lens of occupational science to advocate for changes in your broader community environment to ultimately make them more accessible from everyone. So I feel I have more permission as a normal human being and as an activist to bring this lens and discussion into conversations where you don't have that same fear that you're somehow crossing lines, that through the social model of disability and through understanding yourself as an occupational being as part of your habitat, your ecosystem, your community, you're more empowered to address access barriers in your meeting in your community and building relationships that really help the occupational wellness of everyone. It's also supported me in looking at building meaningful community collaborations and partnerships on shared goals. I started building relationships with other community organizations and offering my perspective as an occupational therapist on the front lines of shared goals, joining more of the mental health community and partnering with disability support services in my community and getting more involved in issues that I want to learn more about, like racial injustice in my community. Also, increase meaningful and occupational balance just throughout development. I'm thinking long term about what choices I can make now to help me age in place and to feel fulfilled throughout my lifespan and taking into account how I want my occupational trajectory to look over time as well. And there's just more of a sense of connection I have to the environment around me with the community that I lived in live in that I understand that there's a transactional connection and I'm part of enhancing the health or the lack of health within my community. And while that can feel somewhat discouraging at first, eventually as you work through the emotions around it, it can feel very empowering. Now I think at the micro level, thinking about what the organization that is experiencing my occupational therapy services that are more informed by occupational science is they start to experience more meaningful changes in the context that improve client satisfaction and employee retention. Bringing that lens about how we can make our spaces more accessible, more likely to promote psychosocial well-being. For example, I'll take the keys that we need to access a certain cupboard and put visual cues so that resource is more accessible and easy to find for everyone. Or finding ways that I can support my client, my coworkers that maybe have visual impairments, showing them software that they can use to access their commute computers with increased ease or promoting more of the population health perspectives. Every moment counts. You can bring that lens to your environment and end up improving the quality of life for everyone and not just your immediate 
clients. That's actually one of the great permission flips that comes from shifting to a value-based care model where you really can, if you work with the right stakeholders, build into that more of a population-based approach to improve outcomes than just working one individual at a time. I think that the organizations that I work with also experience the benefits of reduced redundancy in service delivery and increased confidence in my in compliance with Medicare guidelines. They're more likely to get increased reimbursement, reduced liability risks of duplicate building. And often when clients are receiving occupation-based services and programming to optimize their routines and participation throughout the day, you're going to get reduced anger, agitation, and use of sedation and restraint interventions that really reduce everyone's quality of life and produce experiences of occupational deprivation. I also feel confident that occupation-based services are a huge part of reducing recidivism in our, particularly in hospitals and post-acute care, we're getting more data that it's occupation-based interventions that really make a difference in decreasing readmission and in optimizing reimbursement rates for hospitals, for post-acute care. I think tracking meaningful occupational outcomes the more you read about these actual policies and care guidelines, that really seems to be what everyone's interested in across the board. So I think us as clinicians, increasing our confidence in relation to occupation-based intervention, we'll start to see and contribute to our organizations these meaningful occupation-based intervention outcomes that will really make everybody happy in the system. And I really think that As our organizations adapt to occupational therapists that are very fluent and confident in translating occupational science into our practice settings, they'll receive the confidence that comes from knowing that we're offering evidence-informed intervention that is holistic and proactive in diversity, equity, and inclusion, and preventing human rights violations. Ultimately, a lot of our organizations are very interested in reducing risk to liability And really, by getting more informed in occupational science, there is great potential to start adapting our practice models to be less at risk to litigation over time because you're proactively addressing where there's imbalances in the system and inequitable care and really bring alignment between research practice and policy to support everyone's needs and context. So over time, as our administrators in our buildings get used to occupation-informed services, they'll start to see and value those benefits. So now we'll explore the benefits of occupational science literacy that would take place more at the meso level. This is looking more at local and state policy, a little bit federal policy as well, that end up driving how many of our organizations adapt within the regional context that they're in. So I think at the meso level, from the perspective of a clinician, It's really helpful at, say, the state association level and at the AOTA level to have increased clarity in one's professional identity when it comes to drafting and updating revisions to our scope of practice or communicating about the distinct value that OT practice has to offer in our policy deliberations as association and a professional identity, but also in our contributions as occupational beings and activists in our own communities we can more clearly differentiate our education and what we have to contribute the communities that we work in professionally and as an occupational being. Over time, we're going to build distinct leverage for improved system-wide reimbursement, including and beyond the medical model, with precise occupation outcome data collection. So if you're able to start adapting your services over time through occupational science literacy, to provide services in keeping with the best practices with OT practice framework fourth edition and incorporating many of these changes, over time you're going to start building a database case on what is being contributed and what outcomes occupational therapy is offering. And that creates and builds policy leverage within our state association level, international association level, and internationally in looking at how using an occupational lens can enhance the quality of our policy efforts. So that's one of the benefits from starting to incorporate occupational science literacy into your process as an OT clinician. And it will build up to, as the way that Medicare changes their policies over time, is they always sort of 
assess the practitioner notes in post. So if we want to influence policy in the future, we have to start incorporating our distinct practices into the notes now. <laughs> by the time you wait to get formal permission, it's too late. It's actually what you're doing in the field by following your practice acts and following the developments of the literature that are going to influence the policies and the prioritizations for reimbursement. So I believe that we'll also start to experience increased public clarity and demand for OT services once we get to a point of offering distinct occupation-based services with the clarity of our distinct science base, it's going to be a lot easier to communicate about what OT distinctly offers from a confident and clear, informed position. And I think that you probably won't disagree that really when you think about all the disruption to occupational well-being that's been happening, especially amid the pandemic, there's going to be increased demand for OT services that will translate to more opportunities to serve our community. On the client level, you're going to see more meaningful translation of local, state, federal, and international policy efforts around support for human rights locally and globally. One of the great opportunities that occupational science can offer us as OT clinicians is looking at what are the barriers that are getting in the way of our policy commitments being real on the ground in the actual context that we live in. So as we become more empowered with literacy around these this lens and the different practices that we can take in response to that, we're going to see a lot more alignment between policy intent and policy action by supporting the human rights of all occupational beings. In other countries that have been early to adopt occupational science, such as Australia, UK, and Canada, you see a much stronger role with occupational therapy and involvement with mental health and public health infrastructure. And currently we have many of those policy conversations taking place on the state and national level in the United States. So if we have more clinicians that are literate in occupational science and foundation, we can anticipate an opportunity to advocate for an increase in OT's role in addressing psychosocial barriers to occupational performance, participation, and occupational justice outcomes, just like our peers are ex exploring internationally. We just had several federal laws passed, and AOTA is currently working on federal legislation on mental health parity and OT practice. So many of these opportunities are really on the cusp for us in the United States here. So I love that you're investing now and in getting some occupational science literacy. So another benefit for expanding on the mesolevel level occupational science literacy is that we get to promote an integration of the social model of disability and with the medical model, that we need to start expanding our lens into looking at how the contexts are creating disabling experiences for a diversity of adults from a social standpoint, along with the impacts that come from living with long-term chronic medical conditions and ways to look at how our medical system can be adapted to embrace and support a wider diversity of clinicians, a broader diversity of clients, and to function in a way that it doesn't create occupational occupational deprivation and adverse long-term developmental outcomes from the clients that we're seeking to serve. We also have the likelihood of increased appreciation, the qualitative domain of research, and along with in conjunction with the value that qualitative, quantitative inquiry has to offer. This will really support and translate as we get more confident in our science base, we get to advocate for an overall increase of advocacy for the integration of our full mechanism inquiry to support human benefit, better, betterment. So now when we look at the macro level, which is really taking a global and international lens, some of the benefits that we can hope to experience from occupational science literacy, I believe, can include that we'll have improved confidence in our potential as human beings to develop meaningful solutions to adapt to the pressing and long-term global challenges such as global warming that are likely to impact occupational well-being, health, and participation long-term. By adopting this lens, especially in relation to policy conversations, we have a better chance of avoiding violence, conflict, and responding to our challenges with proactive, meaningful, and inclusive solutions, whether the ones that in reinforce inequalities, divisions, and an appeal to violence rather than diplomatic solutions. Clients are likely to experience, too, meaningful translation of local, state, and federal and international policy efforts that are meant to support human rights locally and globally, 
and we can have hope and a potential for inclusive human adaptation and resilience to these increased, this increased likelihood of navigating multiple global level challenges and occupational disruptions in the decades to come. So beyond the personal and client-based benefits that I anticipate occupational science literacy could support for those of us as clinicians and the clients we serve, I also, in for the rest of this lecture, wanted to enhance some of the value, the practical value that occupational science literacy has to offer us as clinicians just in our ability to move forward on our professional commitments, the formal professional commitments and regulations that shape our practice in the United States and internationally, I think you'll be surprised just how infused occupational science is into our current regulatory structures. So beyond the immediate personal benefits, there's also just logistic benefits of making sure that we understand the regulations and the policies that we're operationalizing, operating under as occupational science, occupational therapists, as well as the current professional commitments of our regulatory bodies and our momentum, we really can be in a much better, better and empowered footing if we understand what these terms mean and where they come from. So in the slides to come, I'm going to link to these documents, and we're going to explore some of the examples of where occupational science has been incorporated into these formal documents. So on the United States side, we're going to explore AOTA's philosophical base for OT and OT education, we're going to look at OT's 2020 Code of Ethics and Standards of Conduct. We're going to look at AOTA's Vision 2025, AOTA's systemic Statement on Systemic Racism, and AOTA's Occupational Therapy Practice Framework, Domain and Process, 4th Edition. Most of these were published in 2020. The AOTA Philosophical Base was published in 2017 and OT Education in 2018. These are contemporary, really guiding regulatory documents, and I think you'll be surprised, just like me, how much occupational science is infused in these commitments. And then from the international standpoint, we'll explore how the World Federation of Occupational Therapies, a statement on occupational science, WFOT statement on OT and human rights, WFOT statement on systemic racism, the minimum standards of OT education, occupational therapy and community-centered practice, and WFOT's disaster preparedness and risk reduction manual. Now, a classic critique of many schools of thought within the United States is this tendency towards what's called United States exceptionalism, which is this idea that the United States is somehow exempt from international commitments or that we do our own thing and <laughs> that's sort of the approach. And I sometimes come across that in the OT world with the sense that occupational science or occupational justice, that's work that's happening internationally, that it's not supposed to be happening here, or that it's reverse colonialism to somehow import some of the occupational science or occupational therapy developments that are happening in other countries. But I think it's really important to put equity to the developments of the World Federation of Occupational Therapy. This is really an advanced coalition and consortium of OT leaders over a variety of different countries and contexts where occupational therapy is developing, and they follow processes to develop consensus over their commitments. And really, human rights are meaningful in every country across the globe, and that the United States is part of the World Federation of Occupational Therapy, and these commitments are just as meaningful as the developments within AOTA. They're just as important. And often our clients, even though we are in a fairly resource-rich country, often have much adverse outcomes and occupational deprivation. We currently have a huge domestic refugee crisis in the United States, and we have so many of our clients that we work with that don't get to experience the full enjoyment of their human rights in contexts that are experiencing inclusion, participation barriers, and they're just as meaningful to be focused on here in the United States as they are internationally. So I really want to challenge you to consider that the World Federation of Occupational Therapies practice statements are just as important and just as meaningful in the United States that we don't get to just exit ourselves from the international community. It really, at least for me, it goes against those, those values of cosmopolitanism, pluralism, democracy, and an appreciation for human rights. So that's really why I'm imparting that to you here. So in 2017, uh, Occupational Therapy posted an update to their philosophical base of occupational therapy. 
And in 2018, they updated their philosophy of occupational therapy education. I'm going to connect here with quotes from two of these resources. So this one here for the philosophical base of OT, here you'll notice the occupations are activities that bring meaning to the daily lives of individuals, families, communities, and populations that enable them to participate in society. Individuals have an innate need and right to engage in meaningful occupations throughout their lives. Participation in these occupations influences their development, health, well-being across the lifespan. Thus, participation in meaningful occupations is a determinant of health and leads to adaptation. So right there, I'm hoping you're seeing just how much the core developments of occupational science has been infused into AOTA's definition of occupational therapies philosophy base. Indeed, you'll see here, it continues to say that occupations occur within diverse social, physical, cultural, personal, temporal, and virtual contexts. So really, essentially, that definition of how occupational science functions has been intimately embedded in what AOTA classifies as our philosophical base of OT. This is really meant to be the foundation of the body of work that comes out both in our scholarship and practice as according to AOTA, our regulatory body. Additionally, this definition, this quote from this document, expresses that the quality of occupational performance and experience of each occupation are unique in each situation because of the dynamic relationship among factors intrinsic to the individual, the environment, and the context in which the occupation occurs. So with that discussion of a dynamic relationship and the distinct perspective, we're seeing that incorporation of transactionalism in this philosophical base. And the characteristics of occupation, the focus and outcome of occupational therapy are clients' engagement in meaningful occupations that support their participation in life situations. So the therapeutic value of occupational engagement as a change agent and the engagement occupations, the ultimate goal of occupational therapy. So we're seeing that explicit commitment to occupation-based practice in this philosophical base and this idea that occupation is a construct that mediates in and of itself therapeutic and adaptive outcomes that are customized and client-centered to the client. So occupational therapy is based on the belief that occupations are fundamental to health promotion and wellness and remediation and restoration, health maintenance, disease and injury prevention and compensation and adaptation. The use of occupation to promote individual, family, community and population health is core to occupational therapy practice, education, research and advocacy. So there, this is almost can really serve as a functional definition for many of the core aims of occupational science, both in the U.S. and internationally, by linking the tie between occupation and health outcomes, prevention, remediation, restoration, as well as going beyond the individual level to incorporate family, community, and population health. So here within the philosophical base of OT Within AOT, I think we're getting parts of the lineage of just almost every major contribution of occupational science over the past 30 years is directly infused in our philosophical base through AOTA. In addition to that, this is our OT philosophical base on OT education published by AOTA in 2018, which references students as occupational beings who are in a dynamic transaction with the learning context and teaching and learning process. So here, I hope you can see just how directly connected that is to occupational science literacy. Additionally, it says the learning context includes curriculum, pedagogy, and conveys a perspective and belief system that include a view of humans as occupational beings, humans as a occupation as a health determinant, and participation in occupations as a fundamental human right. Additionally, it challenges us to that education promotes professional and clinical reasoning, critical thinking, cultural understanding, integration of professional values, theories, evidence, ethics, and skills, and that it will prepare practitioners to collaborate with clients to achieve health, well-being, and participation in life through engagement in occupation. And additionally, it cites that occupational therapy education is an ongoing process that shapes the practitioner's occupational identity. So even that notion of occupational identity. So I hope you can see, and that is jumping out for you, just how incorporated OS is in this formal document. 
Additionally, our OT code of ethics and standards of conduct got a major update in 2020. And this major update incorporated many formal occupational science terms within the body of the document. And as many of our ethics, our code of ethics is a really serious form of professional regulation in that this is where what will be appealed to if your licensure ever comes into question or how you can lose your license or if you get under investigation to lose your credential. These are the things that we're tangibly accountable to as clinicians. So one of the values of gaining occupational science literacy is really knowing what practice obligations you're practicing over under and what the really precise meaning and where it comes from these ethical commitments that we're making as a profession. So I have links above if you want to view any of these documents in full. Unfortunately, with AOTA, you do have to have that membership to get access to these documents, which is one of the reasons I highly encourage considering membership to AOTA so you really can keep up to speed on the developments of these regulatory documents. One of the quotes I can cite here is that AOTA members are committing to committed to promoting inclusion, participation, safety, and well-being for all recipients of services in various stages of life, health, and illness to empowering all beneficiaries of service to meet their occupational needs. Recipients of services may be persons, groups, families, organizations, communities, and populations. So there you can see that occupational science really has played a role in expanding the scope and purview in ethical regulation of OT practice on these various scales. Additionally, the 2020 publication of our Code of Ethics included justice as one of the key values. So here it says that justice places a value on upholding moral and legal principles and having knowledge and respect of the legal rights, such as human rights, of recipients and services. Occupational therapy personnel must understand and abide by local, state, and federal laws governing the professional practice. Justice is the pursuit of a state in which diverse communities are inclusive and are organized and structured so that all members can function, flourish, and live a satisfactory life regardless of age, gender identity, sexual orientation, race, religion, origin, socioeconomic status, degree of ability, or any other status or attributes. Occupational therapy personnel, by virtue of a specific nature of the practice of occupational therapy, have a vested interest in, in social justice, addressing unjust inequities that limit opportunities of participation in society. They also exhibit attitudes and actions consistent with occupational justice. So here you have an occupational science construct directly embedded in our AOTA code of ethics that we are really legally accountable to as OTPs in the U.S. So occupational justice is defined as the full inclusion in everyday meaningful occupations for persons, groups, and populations. Occupational ther therapy personnel develop therapeutic relationships that promote occupational well-being, another occupational science construct, in all persons, groups, organizations, and society, regardless of age, gender identity, sexual orientation, race, religion, origin, socioeconomic status, degree of ability, and other status and attributes. So as you know now that this is really what we're legally accountable is to upholding, what we can get brought to regulatory communities for violating, I hope you can see how having occupational science literacy could support you in upholding this value as part of our national code of ethics. And I just wanted to highlight that I really recommend checking out these documents as well because the Code of Ethics has now offered, authored a Code of Conduct, which I believe this is a quote from the Code of Conduct, actually, that requires, it's very actionable, it's very practical what steps therapists could take. It's not vague in how you can go about violating these principles. So really getting clear on that and those updates to those documents I think is really important because you really deserve as a clinician to know the rules that are regulating your practice and what sort of overstepping can be done where you could risk your license in the United States. So highly recommend checking this out almost above anything else. So in 2020, we also have the AOTA Vision 25 that was revised to include equity, inclusion, and diversity. So we are internationally inclusive, equitable, and embrace the diversity in all its forms. So really, I think that each one of these cornerstones that we're looking to seek to developing in our new strategic vision 
were effective, occupational sciences evidence-based, client-centered, and cost-effective, that we have influential leaders in changing policies, environments, and complex systems, that we're collaborative, working with our clients and in systems to produce effective outcomes, that we're accessible, that we provide culturally responsive and customized services, and the equity, inclusion, and diversity. It's really clear how occupational science literacy could support many of these visions going into really <laughs> the next three years that we have to accomplish these goals. So I recommend checking out this, this document as well as looking at AOTA strategic framework. I think it'll be really transparent how occupational science literacy connects to that. So I also wanted to link you guys to AOTA's statement on systemic racism that came out in 2020. And there's some additional guides that also came out, such as AOTA's guide on addressing the impact of racial discrimination, stigma, and implicit bias in the provision of services, and understanding systemic racism in the United States. So these are all very important conversations that are just now happening in OT practice. But here is quotes directly from our statement on systemic racism that explicitly incorporate occupational science constructs, so thus the importance of knowing about them as field clinicians. So justice is a core value of occupational therapy and the responsibility of all practitioners as established by the AOTA Code of Ethics 2015 that has now since been updated, those prior updates. And notice that all practitioners, so inclusive to occupational therapy assistants, we must work not only to develop and support diverse communities, such as all members that can function, flourish, and live a satisfactory life, but we must endeavor to eliminate occupational injustice, occupational alienation, and occupational deprivation. So here we have the formal inclusion of another statement from AOTA that includes a direct tie to occupational science. So equity, inclusion, diversity is a critical pil pillar of our vision of the future, leading to an inclusive profession that maximizes health, well-being, and quality of life of all people, populations, and communities. The position paper on occupational therapy's commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion affirms the right of e each individual to access and fully participate in society and was developed collaboratively between these, the Commission on Practice, the Commission on Education, the Coalition for Occupational Therapy Advocates for Diversity, or COTAD, and the Multicultural Diversity Inclusion Network. So you can see this is tangible, professional commitments, variety of different stakeholders that is such a benefit to having occupational science literacy and taking on these challenges, and the explicit connection of occupational science to OT practice. So now, as we've explored previously, the AOTA practice framework, fourth edition, also published in 2020, was the first to make an explicit commitment to occupational science, integration of many occupational scientists and core thinkers in really outlining. What's really important to know is that this document is it's a constitution of occupational therapy. It's updated every five years. This is what's deferred to when we want to know what is the formal definition of what constitutes occupational therapy services in the United States and what really is the domain and scope. Anytime you have a state that's looking at updating their scope of practice or they have a challenge in the scope of practice, they're going to defer to what does the OT practice framework say and what does the current literature that's been developed on these constructs, what do they say? They're going to appeal to that and leveraging their judgment. And when they're updating what the practice in the scope of practice will say, this is really where it's formally defined. If your practice framework is like mine, not practice framework, practice act is like mine in your state, in my state, the only thing that's really professionally regulated and protected as occupational therapy scope is when something is occupation-based and occupational in nature. And so this is really important legally in defining the scope and scale and definition of our services. You really want to track this. This is really how the process that we're meant to be following across every state, across every practice setting that really formally defines and distinguishes our services as being occupational therapy in the U.S. And I really want to withhold judgment. I know I've worked with plenty of OTs that actually haven't heard of this document yet, but better late than never, now is really the time to get really informed and immersed in how our practice is formally defined. 
So over time, I would love to make a free supplemental course just going over the occupational therapy practice framework. Unfortunately, we're just going to have to skim the surface here, but I do want to promote you connecting. If you have an AOTA Clash membership, you can get free access to exploring the occupational therapy practice framework fourth edition to do a walkthrough orientation to the document and many of its key changes. We previously included a video that went over many of its key changes. Very briefly, I want to just let you know that some of the key elements of the changes to the current document include an increased commitment to occupation-based, occupation-centered, and occupation-focused practice. We're really moving away from more exercise-based focused practice, and we've eliminated the uh, We've eliminated the concept of preparatory activities. So traditionally more mechanical exercises, things that are detached from meaningful activity, things like the use of ice packs, modalities. There's a big shift to move away from simulated context or more biomechanical exercises to only utilizing things that are occupation-based, occupation-centered, and occupation-focused. And so we're really now only allowed to use those interventions when they're connected explicitly to an occupational participation outcome and optimizing the really the outcomes of occupational therapy practice. That's one of the ways that occupational science has been incorporated the most. That's where we need to start adapting our practice to be in compliance with the practice so one of the examples of moving away from preparatory activities is fine motor is really only referenced once in the practice framework document, and it's only in reference to learning and translating into an occupation-based intervention. And we have the introduction of groups and populations to our domain and process, whereas before it was more on the individual level. So here's a quote from a statement direct from the OTPF4 domain and process on the uh, on occupation and occupational science. So this says that embedded in this document is the occupational therapies profession's core belief in the positive relationship between occupation and health and its views people as occupational beings. Occupational therapy practices emphasizes the occupational nature of humans, the importance of occupational identity to healthful, productive, and satisfying living. As Hooper and Wood two occupational scientists, stated a core philosophical assumption of the profession and therefore that by virtue of our biological endowment, people of all ages and abilities require occupation to grow and thrive. In pursuing occupation, humans express the totality of their being, mind, body, spirit, union, because humans exist, could, human existence could not be otherwise be, humankind is in essence occupational by nature. So they're quoting two occupational scientists and creating this core statement. And they state here, the occupational science is important to the practice of occupational therapy and provides a way of thinking that enables an understanding of occupation, the occupational nature of humans, the relationship between occupation, health, and well-being, and influences that shape occupation. And they're referencing here the World Federation of Occupational Therapy, and many of its concepts are emphasized throughout the OTPF4, including occupational justice, occupational injustice, identity, time use, satisfaction, engagement, and performance. So here you're getting that formal tie into our professional regulatory documents, and therefore the important need for all of us as clinicians to be enhanced with our literacy of where these terms come from and how we can leverage them therapeutically with our clients. So here are some more direct examples on how occupational science influenced this regulatory document for occupational therapy. Outcomes are directly related to the interventions provided and to the targeted occupations, performance patterns, performance skills, client factors, and context, right? Outcomes may be traced to improvement in areas of the domain, such as performance skills, client factors, but should ultimately be reflected in each client's ability to engage in their desired occupation. Outcomes targeted in occupational therapy can be summarized as occupational performance, prevention, health and wellness, quality of life, participation, role competence, well-being, and occupational justice. So notice here that we're not looking at neurology, vision, visual motor integration. We're moving, this is a great sign of how we're moving beyond that mechanistic approach that's looking more at the things inside a person's body going wrong, and therefore that being wrong to looking at how do we improve the outcomes of our clients' performance in their natural context and shifting that leveraging of occupation outside of the body in more of a dynamic relationship. 
So this is a huge sign of where, with our practice framework, we're moving beyond that mechanistic paradigm and we're not putting on a pedestal certain outcomes that are more those biomechanical ones above the other ones. And indeed, this practice framework, if you read it in detail, is asking that we put those biomedical and normalized aims really only in the context of occupational performance and participation, for example. And in this quote, we're also getting the incorporation of occupational adaptation, one of the major developments of occupational science or developments also explored within occupational science with the client's effective and efficient response to occupational and contextual demands. And we're getting, again, that expanded scale to include persons, groups, and populations. Okay, so at this point, I'm just really hoping that you're sold in just how incorporated occupational science is now into AOTA's formal documents and commitments. And I encourage you to explore any of the links above. And if you do get a chance to explore these resources, please include it on your UpCoach platform as engagement points for expanded learning beyond the scale of this course. So I encourage you to look at WFOT's statement on occupational science. All right, so one of our other formal associations here in the United States, we have the Society for Study of Occupation USA, really leading from the occupational science standpoint. In 2020, they published their formal statement on the relationship between occupational science and occupational therapy as a position statement. And a quote from their document, honored that occupational science research can inform and enhance occupational therapy practice by strengthening the profession's understanding of occupation, its recognition of clients as occupational beings, and how to best deploy the knowledge into practice. Occupational therapy research can inform and enhance occupational science by deepening understanding about experiences of disability and aspects of intervention. So really, they've made it a... really made a formal commitment to tying both of the fields in an active and supportive interrelationship. And I know from getting involved in the association that they're really making a meaningful effort to begin more of an active partnership with OT clinicians and the publication of practice-based research in the United States. So really we're starting to see more and more the formal integration across associations tying occupational therapy with occupational science literacy for really helpful outcomes really across the board. So WFOT positions that occupational that occupational science is significant to occupational therapy because of the knowledge. So really just the understanding the knowledge, the skills, and the understanding of enabling human occupation are essential to developing occupational therapy curriculum and that occupational focused theoretical frameworks for occupational therapy, that it's important to have occupational therapy focused frameworks and not just appealing to other outside disciplines and developing our knowledge and skills and assessment of the efficiency of our interventions. They also state that it underpins effective occupational therapy practice by providing a rich understanding of occupation is both the therapeutic means and the ultimate goal of occupational therapy and that concepts from occupational sciences help occupational therapists understand their client's subjective experiences and unique perspectives while also considering context. So bringing in those other methodologies beyond the biomechanical model. If you haven't read this already, the WFOT statement on OT and human rights is a really important guiding document to occupational therapy practice and really helping to contextualize the importance of the work that we do internationally. And you can see how boldly it includes occupational science. So here it says that occupational therapists are concerned with human rights in pursuing occupational justice for all. Occupational justice requires universal rights to occupation, broadly defined and recognizing differences related to cultural, social, political, current, and historic and geographic context. Occupational justice is the fulfillment of the right of all to engage in the occupations they need to survive, define as meaningful, and that contribute positively to their own well-being and the well-being of their communities. Occupational justice requires that occupational rights to all to participate in a range of occupations that support survival, health, well-being, so that populations, communities, families, individuals can flourish and realize their potential consistent with the Ottawa Charter. So really, these are broader agreements that we're accountable to internationally. So it allows us to choose occupations without pressure, force, coercion, or threats. 
with the acknowledgement that with choice comes responsibility for other people, life forms, and the planet. Freely engage in necessary and chosen occupations without risk to safety, human dignity, and equity. So really, if you get a chance to explore Anne Wilcox's textbook, An Occupational Perspective on Health, you'll really see that this is foundational to the contribution that she's made as an occupational scientist and has really shaped many of the support services that have been occurring internationally. Many OTs have been appealed to with the refugee crisis in relation to Ukraine and many international refugee crises. And sometimes we get that same U.S. exceptionalism mindset of thinking that, oh, this is just something that happens in other countries. But I promise you, if you look even in your own community, it's very likely that you have marginalized and refugee communities that need supports and occupational supports to adapt to the regional context and to be included in society meaningfully without losing inherent connection to their own culture and legacy. And so really, this work is happening here in the United States, whether or not we're conscious and aware of it. And really, everybody needs healthcare. Everybody needs education. So if you're not aware of potential refugee populations, and even just domestic refugee populations here in the United States, they are likely present and active in your schools, in your medical, in your healthcare things, and are likely underserved and are in need of an occupational science-informed lens. We really have many human rights issues being perpetuated in the United States that command your immediate attention and participation, not just as occupational therapists, but as occupational beings. And here you're noticing that in these professional document, our regulatory documents, they're giving us formal permission to commit to be part of the solutions to these broader questions. So similar to AOTA, WFOT also issued a statement on systemic racism in 2020. Here's an example quote, that it's imperative that occupational therapists address the systemic discrimination, oppression, and justice that are pervasive in health and social services around the world. Action is required to address the social determinants of health that currently impede justice impede justice and equity. Such determinants include racism, poverty, economic restrictions, discrimination, displacement, disasters, conflict, and historically oppressive systems. So here, we're not just getting this commitment on the national level, it's also on the international level that these pressing matters require attention, and we have permission to engage in these questions from occupational science and occupational therapy leadership. So another area where occupational science has been included in professional commitments is that it's incorporated in WFOT's minimum standards of OT education. Here's where we really need to start nudging ACO to really incorporate more occupational science into their curriculum. Here's an example of a quote from this document that relationships between occupation health, well-being, and human rights This section is about how occupation affects health and how health affects occupation. It includes a graduate's knowledge about how activity limitations and participation in occupation affect health. This includes the ability to maintain healthy environment and personal factors such as adjustment, interpersonal relationships, and social networks. How occupation can be used therapeutically to influence health and increase participation and satisfaction with participation. So we're really seeing that this language has been formally incorporated for a while. This is from back in 2016. In a more recent publication in 2019, we have WFOT making a statement on occupational therapy and community-centered practice, so really moving beyond an individualized model of practice. And so here we have them sponsoring that occupational therapists can utilize a community-centered approach to practice with communities and facilitate initiatives to improve community health, well-being, and inclusion. There is a great potential for occupational therapists to establish community-level practice roles within healthcare settings, social services, government, non-government and charitable organizations, schools, and within social and political movements, and activists and lobbying groups. Occupational therapists have skills and knowledge of community development, health promotion, capacity developing, environmental design, and advocacy that can be applied in community-centered practice. This position statement can be used to promote a shared understanding and to advocate for current and future role development. Additionally, development of community-centered practice in occupational therapy expands upon existing individual and person-focused approaches, strengthening service provision with collectives and clients identifying with a collectivist worldview. So notice that this is adding as a frosting on top. It's really acknowledging we have a robust work that has looked at things from the individual level and now we're adding on top of that an appreciation for how that fits into the context with a collective and really making 
our practice developments cohesive with our theory development with occupational science and broadening the role of what's already been taking place very actively on the front lines of international practice and is really starting to take root here in the United States. Indeed, it's always been an active part of occupational science, occupational therapy in the United States. We really started on the ground floors of more of an advocacy mindset and approach of working within systems to really respond to community-based needs and then empowering community-based ways from that moral treatment route and on. So this is just really honoring and acknowledging the work that we've already done. And I hope you can pair this statement with the developments in the practice framework and realizing that now we have formal permission to start developing practices in an applied setting with groups and populations, and we have the resources that have been developing with occupational science and our connection to the social sciences to start building a body of work and a body of research and a body of outcomes data on how this sort of approach can improve our communities tangibly. Really, I'm taking these statements and looking through that lens of practical idealism. How do we make these commitments real things? And that's really going to take us as clinicians, as implementers, to make the commitments of these practice documents, the developments of occupational science, real in our communities. That really only happens if we have people like us that can translate them to make them really meaningful in our naturalistic content. So lastly, as a practical example on how occupational science has been formally incorporated in our professional regulatory documents, I wanted to connect you with WFOT's 2022 Disaster Preparedness and Risk Reduction Manual. This is one of the more recent publications from WFOT, and it really honors how understanding that natural disasters that, you know, have really become increasingly common in the United States and particularly internationally, they really br- draw us all together. And having an occupational lens, an occupational science-informed approach is one that really can benefit all of us as it becomes more and more pressing that we come together to respond to these disasters in a way that can make us stronger as communities, more inclusive as communities, rather than taking a more destructive role <laughs> and tearing us apart. So here it talks about how the WFOT, Disaster Preparedness and Risk Reduction Manual, sets an important standard in valuing a complex approach of the DPRR initiatives. Principles of occupational therapy, roles, and actions are explained and illustrated across different levels of social involvement, that is, at the micro, meso, and macro levels. And these principles guide the reader to invite individuals, families, groups, and communities to voice their needs and collectively engage in a process of healing, to think of alternative paths, to prepare for future events, to build resilience and create sustainability. This text highlights ways to engage people, communities, and practitioners, educators, and researchers in advocacy and preparatory participatory action about the elaboration, implementation, and evaluation of local and global resources and policies. The manual addresses, quote, how occupational therapists can apply their professional knowledge to disaster response by means of assessment interventions related to daily life activities that can be applied when needed and accepted by a community within the framework of global initiatives. You likely, hopefully, saw the example of Gail Whiteford's work in response to bush fires throughout Australia in her publication in collaboration with the community she was in affiliation with in the Doing Our Best initiative. This is a dressed example. Harkening back, if you remember the occupational disruption in my lens of looking at the Lion King, when we have a natural disaster disruption come through, How can we use occupational science as a vehicle for repair and looking for agency and how we can adapt and even rebuild systems that are even more inclusive, more honoring to the well-being of a diverse community? I hope that in this lecture, I hope you feel empowered that you do have formal permission to engage with these concepts as clinicians, that you don't have to have a PhD to start learning with and thinking about how do we apply the wisdom that we've developed in our field not just over the last 30 years of occupational science, but really reconnecting with the those that were involved in the initial founding of occupational therapy, and before that, those that were a part of having a ecologically balanced relationship to the land and building communities that could really support a diversity of individuals. And even if we haven't ever gotten that question perfect in the past, how can we use the tools and the science bases that we've developed, the technology, 
and the ability to listen to diverse stakeholders to build solutions that are adaptive, that are responsive, that really take into account the importance of occupation in our context across cultural contexts. I hope you feel empowered to join this conversation and that you can use these professional position statements to validate your connection to this work if that's something that you're interested in. So next what we have for you is we're going to explore an interview of a multi-generational panel where all of us that are on the panel have had late or mid-career exposure to occupational science, exploring the benefits and the transformative power that engaging with occupational science have on their practice, their well-being, their life, and how we can support each other as an intergenerational cohort of occupational therapists that most of us by and large will have late and mid-career exposure to occupational science. I really hope that by building literacy too with these concepts, you'll feel more empowered by position statements and regulatory changes like this, and that you can be part of the table in the conversation rather than feeling like very abstract or top-down changes. Being included and empowered with understanding this terminology, you now have more of a powered seat at the table and engaging with these concepts and applying them in the field you can get a very good sense on why your work as a clinician is so important to the development of occupational therapy and occupational science internationally. Because really, all of this work is only important, I think, if it's somehow applied and we get to see its impact in the context we live, work, and play in. And you get to be an agent of that change just by virtue of even knowing these concepts and looking at them in your own life. You get to be part of an active, constructive change agent just even starting with you is so significant. I've certainly found it very empowering and helpful in my own life, and I hope it continues to be an interesting journey for you, and I'm excited to connect you with others that can talk about their experience as well. Thank you so much.